Greatest Breakfast in the World by Owen Boone. It's 2.30 in the morning when you write off the second invented Ferrari. You leave it wrapped around a lamppost somewhere in East London and pay a passing teenage drug courier 500 quid to lend you his BMX. <coughs> By the time you reach your mistress's flat 40 minutes later, the ketamine is already wearing off and the two highly poisonous, highly illegal Japanese pufferfish under your arm are on the turn. <laughs> you had better and worse Saturday nights. Barry Large, celebrity chef, you're a monster. You're 38 years old with a 50-inch chest and arms like a grizzly bear. Your face is like a side of beef. You can knock out a horse with a single punch. You have five restaurants with your name above the door. You're at least half a million quid in debt. And for the last month, you've been on an epic bender that's involved three continents, two countries, 25 different sexual partners, and 43 nightclubs. Two days ago, you woke up on Copacabana Beach with an appalling princess and no memory of how either of you got there. And in less than four hours, you're due to serve the greatest meal of your life. You're a walking case study, Barry. You're a textbook definition. Psychotherapists could build entire careers on you. Your wife, not unreasonably, has demanded a divorce. As you lay your face upon the lovely buttocks of the latest Ukrainian model-turned-actress to fall for your rough charms, have you learned anything, Barry? Anything at all? They send a car for you at four. As the dawn struggles to break over Essex, you speed along the A13, swigging from a bottle of Pierre Ferrand 1972 vintage cognac and sniffing poppers. The party's been going on all weekend somewhere out in the marshes. The guests are a hand-picked selection of hedge fund managers, minor European royals, and the fashionable sons and daughters of ageing rock stars. The climax will be the greatest breakfast in the world. Your breakfast. The critics lap you up. They love your coolity out. Your greatest hits include beluga caviar dished up by genuine Russian hitmen. <laughs> Spider crab pate served in the back of a speedboat pursued by Somali pirates. <laughs> and death by chocolate enjoyed while blindfolded on a window ledge 15 stories up. <laughs> you once told a journalist you had more respect for a carrot than you had for 99% of the human race. And it was true. You told another journalist that if you ever saw him in one of your restaurants again, you'd kill him. And that was true too. <laughs> you finish off a bottle of amyl nitrate and the driver catches your eye in the mirror and says, you want to wash that stuff? You give him your biggest smile. You look like the devil, Barry.
you want to party, I know some people, he says. The wife and I, well, she's a big fan of yours. Do you know what I mean? You know what he means. You take his business, business card all the same. Because it would be rude not to. Because you never know. Your father was a drinker. He used to knock you about until the day you flattened him. You reached an accommodation after that. The last time you saw him, he tried to steal 20 grand from you. You passed through the last of the villages strung out along the Thames estuary. Beyond here, there's only marshes and abandoned military installations. The landscape is waterlogged. Mudlogged, anyway. It's lousy, with hidden creeks. At high tide, you need a boat to travel more than ten feet from the road. You find yourself thinking, you can't help it. This would be the perfect place to get rid of a body. And then the island looms up out of the mist. As you drive over the bridge and along the raised causeway, the sun is coming up somewhere out near the North Sea. You wind down the window to smell the sea air. You can hear the thud of the bass in the distance. The manor house has been owned by the Ministry of Defence since 1915, when they bought the whole island for munitions <coughs> testing. During the Second World War, it was the centre of operations for a series of highly secret germ warfare experiments. The corrugated tin sheds where they kept the prisoners are still standing in the ground. Officially, the place doesn't exist. Unofficially, it's available to those with the right connections for events like these. Permanent victory celebrations for the winners of life's lottery. You find Steve, the sous chef, in the industrial-sized kitchen. He's been here all night, leading the line, because he's magnificent and loyal and because he's waiting for the next heart attack to finish you off so he can take over the business. <laughs> you look terrible, <coughs> he says. Only speed, <coughs> you say. As you chop out a couple of lines in the library, three heiresses run screaming naked across the lawn. They're pursued by an overweight, preactive <coughs> retail billionaire. <laughs> Past them, beyond the trees at the bottom of the garden, you can see the first of a fleet of balloons being inflated down on the marsh, its envelope climbing into the watery sunlight. Your very first day in a restaurant <coughs> kitchen, you knew you'd found your home. The pastry chef asked you to hand him a metal label that had been heated on the cooking range. They played the same trick on all the new pot washers. You were supposed to burn your hand and drop it. Instead, you calmly held it out to him, looking him straight in the eye. You didn't even blink. That got you a round of applause, a permanent scar, and the attention of the head chef. A year later, you had his job, his flat, and his girlfriend. After that, it was easy. You realised all you had to do was work twice as hard as everyone else and you could have anything you wanted. 
And you wanted everything, didn't you? The thing about food... Are you listening, Barry? Can you hear me over the pounding in your ears? The thing about food is that it doesn't let you down. You get out exactly what you put in. That's why you can still remember the first time you cooked lobster. The first time you tasted autumn The first time you got a souffle to rise just right. Even if you can't remember why any of it mattered. At a quarter to six, the guests start gathering for their flight. The supermodels and the investment bankers and the gallery owners and the giants of business. As they queue up, and what a novelty that is for them. Each is handed a small, exquisitely designed box. Sorting the paper alone took you six months. There are strict instructions that the ribbon securing the box's lid must not be untied until the balloon has left the ground. In the event, you almost missed the takeoff, because you're having sex in a cupboard with one of the waitresses. <laughs> You're forced to sprint down the lawn holding your trousers up with one hand. I'll give you this. The sight of all those balloons lifting into the early morning sky is breathtaking. Their shadows seem to go on for miles. And those rich folks certainly scrub up, don't they? As the music fades away into the distance, you could almost believe they're the last, most perfect people on earth. A shipping magnet's daughter, who has taken too much ecstasy, bursts into tears at the impossible loveliness of it all. At 2,000 feet, cocktails are served and the boxes opened. The marmalade is made from incredibly rare Japanese Densuki watermelon, gold leaf, and a 50-year-old scotch created by a distillery so exclusive it only produces two bottles a year. <laughs> the starter for the sourdough toast can trace its ancestry back to a recipe owned by Napoleon's personal boulanger. The shot of espresso comes from beans that are passed through the digestive tracts of a palm civet, a sun bear, and a Komodo dragon. <laughs> In that order. <laughs> a single matsutake mushroom, a sliver of wagyu beef so thin you can see through it, and a spoonful of white alba truffle cream cheese complete the dish. Cost? Approximately £50,000 per head. But not quite the greatest breakfast in the world. Not yet. We still meet the coup in this particular coup de théâtre. You brought a loud hailer so they can hear you in the other balloons. As you get up to speak, you notice that the acid you dropped half an hour ago has kicked in. <laughs> the sky is so blue, you can taste it at the back of your throat. Francois Vattel, you announced to everyone, was the most famous chef in France. 
This is not the first time you've told this story. It is the first time you've told it while on LSD. <laughs> he was the maitre d'hôtel at the Chateau de Chantilly during the reign of Louis XIV. And he was tasked with arranging the greatest celebration of food that has ever taken place. Your guests listen respectfully while stuffing their faces. Everyone was supposed to end the dinner by weeping with delight, he continued. Dukes, countesses, the king. And as the courses progressed, all was going well. Here you pause. Until the fish course, he said, which was late. So Vatel gutted himself with a fish knife in front of the diners. And at that, they look up. <laughs> From the distant shore, you can still hear the odd snatch of music. It might just be the drugs. <laughs> I used to think Vatel killed himself because he'd let, let his guests down. You continued. To be honest, you're finding it hard to concentrate. What with the giant's beatific faces, you can suddenly see smiling from the gently pulsating clouds. <laughs> but now, you go on, now I think he killed himself because he realised he hadn't properly honoured the food. And that's something we're all guilty of, isn't it? Confused expressions. And those weird glowing auras are starting to appear around everyone's heads. Uh-oh. And so I wondered, you say, how we can all make amends. What sacrifice can we make to honour this fantastic, fantastic fortune? What can we give back? Seriously, you've lost them here, Barry. They're thinking, who is this man that we've let into our fabulous lives? This, this cook. They're thinking this, with food on the end of their forks, that you've spent over a year of your life planning. And then the up-and-coming heir to a highly regarded theatrical dynasty drops dead, cuts on his chest, owning the moment magnificently, it has to be said, a trooper to the lot a millionaire racing driver, and two stand-up comedians are next. Their final moments are less impressive. The others follow in groups of two and three, alternately wild-eyed, horrified, and outraged by this unexpected reversal of fortune. All that money in yet, etc., etc. It's the same story in all the balloons. It takes about five minutes. There is an amount of screaming and unpleasantness. Poison doesn't guarantee the nicest of deaths. Even the crew? Yes. Unfortunately, them too. That's a shame, isn't it? You've lost our sympathy a bit there, Barry, all things considered. <laughs> Although you're probably too far gone to care much what with the drugs. And then there's just you, 
and your ghostly fleet drifting on the wind. You reckon with good weather, you might make the North Pole. Apparently, it's lovely this time of year. 